So today, for today's message, we are going to be veering off a little bit from the book of Revelation. Uh, we were, um, uh, Wilma had a topic and uh, I think it's a great topic and kind of happened where I asked her, you know, do you have, uh, would you like to speak? And then she said she had this topic that she was working on. And uh, so then we were working on it and stuff. And and uh, so we decided to, after we talked about it and figured it out, we decided to split it into two sections. So I'm going to speak for the first little bit, kind of drawing in the lines, so to speak, and she's going to color them in. Um, so I'm going to kind of provide a bit of a structure. Uh, and then uh, she's going to talk about an experience that she had that kind of talked about how this was spiritually relevant in her story and, and how that works. So I think this is going to be just a little bit different um, and hopefully, um, hopefully something that blesses you. It's about how we deal with threat, how we deal with, uh, with evil in our world. And uh, there's been experiences that we've been having lately in our, in our continent. Uh, in the US, uh, we had um, kind of the taking or the invasion of Capitol Hill uh, by protesters, and then a lot of response to that. And, and there's just a lot of turmoil and tension and threat in the United States right now. And then there's also COVID, which is a huge threat for the whole world, everybody, whether you're, no matter what you're doing, it's a threat to you. Um, and there's this kind of enemy that's sitting there and you don't know where it is, you can't see it. And it's, it's just an interesting thing to have everybody in the world kind of under threat at the same time and having to deal with the same threat. And um, so this is a very timely topic for us. And, and I feel like it is something that was kind of given to us. So, um, so let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your active word that you give us and that you can give us topics and information that helps us to deal with what we're going through really in our lives and, and just gives us spiritual direction on what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. Just like this morning, we had the pre-service prayer that, that was talking about the armor of God and um, and so there is this response that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to we're supposed to battle against threat. But how do we battle? How do we actually put on that armor of God? How do we um, move forward against evil in our world that is so active and and sometimes kind of tricky? So uh, today I want to talk about how God's response is different. And in order to start talking about threat, in order to start talking about uh, how how we're supposed to respond to threat? We're gonna I'm gonna take you back to the, the book of Genesis, right to the beginning, and talk about uh, how Adam and Eve dealt with threat in their um, in their world. Now, the first thing to know is that um, even though in the Garden of Eden, before they Adam and Eve ate from the tree, it was very uh, kind of idyllic. And, and was very different in a lot of different ways. And I won't get into all those different ways. Um, it was different. There was still a threat, at least for most of the time that they were there. There might've been a moment there when there was no tree, but basically the entire time that they were in the Garden of Eden, as far as I understand the timeline, they were under a threat. And um, so I'll just read this for you. Genesis 2, 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, this is Adam, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Um, now, I don't believe that the God is like threatening Adam. I think he's instructing him about a reality and informing him of a threat, a threat that was put in the garden. And so even though it was very different in the Garden of Eden, there was always, or I'll just say always, even though there might have been some point where, I don't know, this wasn't a threat, there was basically always a threat in two human beings. There's always that. There was always good and there was always evil. There was always a boundary that was put there. And I, I've given talks on this before about how boundaries can actually be good things. And I don't believe that this wasn't an act of love. I believe it was an act of love to create a boundary and to have that. And um, but I'm not going to get into that part today. So I'll just kind of my main point to, to say today is how there was this presence of something that was dangerous, a danger is another way to say it, a danger for Adam and Eve, you know, from the beginning. And um, so one thing that's interesting is even though but like before the tree, there was no knowledge of evil. I mean, there was knowledge of the tree, knowledge of the threat, but there was a certain knowledge that wasn't there for Adam and Eve, but they still had to deal with it. They still had to deal with a threat to them, even though they didn't have the same kind of knowledge of evil that God had in some way. And so how do you manage a threat when you don't understand it? And it's probably hard for us to imagine what it would be like to feel that way because we're born with this knowledge. We're born post the tree, you know, after the tree. We're, we're, we never swam in that water before. We never lived in that perception. And so it's kind of like saying, what would it be like to not be able to, to, to see color or something like that? Like it, it's, it would be hard for us to imagine or maybe even if there was a new color that you'd never seen before, like it's, it's hard to uh, imagine what that would be like to be without the knowledge that we have, because it's so in us and so foundational. So it's hard probably for us to completely understand it, but how, but I do have this idea of what it can be like to face a threat that you don't understand. And we can see that in children, um, you know, when you are a child and you see a threat and you don't understand it, you don't know what's going on around you, you know, there's something dangerous. How do you deal with that? Well, the answer, I believe, maybe there's more than one, but the answer that came to me about how they dealt with threat before the knowledge, the full knowledge or the greater knowledge of this threat was through obedience. They had obedience. They were told what to do. This is how you manage it. You don't understand it, but you can manage it by obeying me. So this is a father giving, giving instruction, don't eat of it, don't touch it, and you're going to be okay. Even if, though you don't understand it, just obey me. If you obey me, you will be protected. So right from the beginning, there is this obedience as a protection. And if they engaged in that obedience, they would be protected. Now there's other words for this obedience that we could use, faith. Not understanding something fully, still believing it, having that trust. It's another word that you could use. I don't understand this, so I will trust you. I will obey you. You could also potentially use the word love as a portion of this. It's a relationship. I have a relationship with the Father. I'm speaking for Adam. I have a relationship with this 
father who walks with me in the garden and I trust him, I have faith in him and I love him. I have this, so this relationship is protecting Adam. This relationship with God is protecting him from the tree. As long as I stay in this relationship, trust him, love him, obey him as part of that. It's all mixed together, right? If you trust and you love, you're more likely to obey. I mean, why wouldn't you obey somebody you trusted and loved? So this relationship is really the protection against this threat that Adam, he's not defenseless. He has faith. He has trust. He has love. But he doesn't have understanding. He doesn't know evil in the way that he will later in the story after he eats. So I'm going to read the story here just quickly, just to refresh us all on it. So this is Genesis 3, starting at 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, the serpent did, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make you, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her. So he was with her the whole time here. It's a good point to kind of emphasize here. Um, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were, here's the response, right when they eat it, their eyes are opened. They knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he was, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So Adam replies with this. And he said, Adam continued, or sorry, God continued, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. The serpent did it. And I ate. Okay, so we have, they have now not engaged in their protection. They have disobeyed. And so the, the, the threat in, gets bigger and enlarges and they had this response. Now there's, you could break up the response in different ways. And I think this is a good way to do it. Uh, there is a self protection that starts and there's uh, fear or flight. There's, I was afraid because I was naked. So I, you know, all right away, they are afraid they're hiding. Um, there is fight. Now they're not fighting each other with fists. That does come later pretty quickly where they're hurting each other, but immediately there is this fight. Immediately in their response, there's blame, which is a way of being aggressive towards somebody. So he's, there's blame of, of uh, Eve, there's 
This is a woman that you gave me. There's blame of God. There's blame of the serpent. Um, so they're fighting. They're afraid. And then they freeze. There's a freeze in there too where they hide and they stay very still to hide from God. So we see these responses that we often see in psychology. We see this fight or flight and then often what's missed is freeze. There's this response that we have to threat that Adam and Eve show after the tree. Now, there's a few things that are interesting about this. The first is that it's new, which I just said. It's a new response. It wasn't there before. As far as we know, it doesn't look like it was there before, particularly, you know, kind of being afraid of God and this, you know, shame of themselves. In fact, it was seen as a sign that they had eaten the fruit, that they had this response. Wait a minute, you're responding differently. I think you ate the fruit, God says. You know, So it's a new response. It's because of the tree. And it's a way also, the second thing that's interesting is it's a way of protecting themselves. So they are protecting themselves. Now, before they had a way of protecting themselves, which was obedience, now they have a new way to protect themselves. And they don't feel like obedience is enough anymore. They're protecting themselves even from God. And that's new. They're not protecting themselves just from other things. They're actually protecting themselves from God. So the relationship is different. They've broken the relationship in a way and they're now afraid and wanting distance from God. They're hiding from him. Now, in psychology, I think it's very interesting. And Wilma was the one who identified this in this kind of dynamic. It's interesting in psychology that this fight, flight, or freeze is called the reptile brain. I think that's just very interesting because in the Garden of Eden, the reptile is the serpent. And so, I mean, I, I could maybe change that a little bit. They call it the reptile brain, which is, I think, interesting. And, and they even try to find it in the brain. But I mean, I think I could just call it the reptile response. There's this reptilian response that all of a sudden humans are engaging in after they eat the fruit. There's this reptilian response. And there's reasons why they do that. They look at the nervous system and they're seeing this response. It's a very basic response. It's a very foundational back of the brain kind of thing, part of our response. It doesn't have, we don't have full control of it. it. It influences us even when we don't want it to, it kind of bubbles up and we have to deal with it. We have to deal with this basic response in the same way that it would be hard to stop breathing or it would be hard to stop your heart beating. It's this basic fundamental part of our brain now that's kind of there and bubbles up for us. And so before the fall, we have one choice, one way of protection, which is obedience, very protective, faith and trust, relationship. Now there's an alternative. And now we're faced with this choice all the time. We're faced with this difference every time we face a threat. And how often are we facing a threat? Well, a lot. We're facing threats all the time, very often. And so in our self-defense, we can decide now in a new way to protect ourselves, to say, I'm not going to protect myself with relationship. I'm not going to protect myself with faith. I'm going to just protect myself. I'm going to choose to do this myself now. And I think that's really interesting. And we can see, I believe that Satan doesn't use relationship with God. I mean, it wouldn't make sense that he would. He doesn't use the choice for trust and faith anymore. 
he only has the reptilian response. That's all he has left. Everything else he's chosen to disregard. And so he's made a very single response to, to run, to fight, and fighting is a big category. There's lots of ways to fight deception and murder and all these kinds of things you could fight or you can freeze. There's all, he has these options. And as, and, and as Adam and Eve decide to follow him and his advice, there's this shift in us and there's this shift in our brain potentially, or, or I'm not sure. There's a, there's a bit of a mystery here on exactly how this works or how this operates, but all of a sudden humans are given this reality that we have to deal with. Shift in our brain where we have to deal with this reptilian response now to threat. And we can see, I believe that even Jesus had to deal with this. He had a choice. I don't think that it would be as meaningful for Jesus to have walked on the earth if he didn't have to deal with the reptilian response. Now, the, re the evidence I have for this is, I, I believe the clearest is in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think that Jesus was without this basic response in his body. I believe that he had these human things that he had to deal with. He was like us, he was tempted. He had these, these basic responses inside of himself, just like he had to deal with pain and growth and increased abilities in different ways and had to choose relationship, he could have also chosen fear, flight, fight, and freezing. He could have chosen those. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane happens before he faces the cross. And I don't know exactly what's happening there spiritually. Somehow he's dealing with this soon-to-come cross, and he's making this choice, and he's troubled. Luke twenty-two forty-three. And there appeared to him, Jesus, an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Why did Jesus need strengthening? And being in agony, Jesus is in agony. Jesus, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat, Jesus's sweat became like drops of blood to the ground. It says in other places, he was troubled. He's asking, he's asking for the disciples to be with him and they keep falling asleep. He's saying, stay up with me. He's trying to socially engage in this moment, but they keep falling asleep on him. So he goes to God. I think he would have prayed anyway, but he's praying repeatedly again and again. He's going to God. And in the end, his response to God is Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This is his prayer. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He chooses the original Garden of Eden response, which is obedience. He chooses obedience in the end, which is the original protection that we have against evil. When we don't fully understand, when things are challenging, when you're fighting this fight, flight, or freeze, we still have the choice. It's the Garden of Eden original defense hasn't left us. We can still choose relationship, love, faith, trust. We can still choose obedience in that moment. And it's protective. It protects us from evil. Your will be done, not mine. 
We can ask, we can ask God to do things for us, but in the end, we have to obey if we're gonna do that original response. In psychology, they've actually identified social engagement. In psychology, they've actually, I mean, they talk about the fight, flight, or freeze. They have that as one category. And then they say, in order to get out of it, you have this opportunity to socially engage. Now, these are psychologists, they're not, most of them aren't Christian. So they don't put God in this category. They just say social engagement is a way of, of um, getting around this reptilian response. And it's there. You can, if you engage in your community, if you engage in um, with other people, you you can kind of get around to a degree this reptilian response. And we can see this in Adam and Eve, like the first response the first protection was with God it was like Adam and Eve Adam and God was in the beginning you had that relationship and then he said it's not good for you to be alone and he even gave the other part he said you need a partner so he made Eve for Adam and and he's like there's this social protection there's this social response that's there for you and and psychology would say that it was like there's this other kind of they all line up which is nice when you see that um because it means that we're starting to understand the bible more and, but I believe that it goes beyond social, what psychology would call social engagement, because I think the ultimate engagement, the original, original engagement, even before there were two people, when there was just one person, there was God. And that's the ultimate social engagement. That's the ultimate way of getting around this reptilian response is to be in relationship with God. And to be in that, to still engage in that choice. And that's what Jesus does in that moment. And that's what we can do in our moment, we can decide between these two sets of responses. We can either go one way. And in some ways, if we don't choose God, what our brain says is we actually don't have a choice. You have this choice in the beginning where you can choose social engagement, but if you don't choose it, you can't fight this reptilian response. It just takes over. And you have this, this kind of slide that takes you down this road of fight, fight, or fight, and it's hard to get out of. Like you have to then kind of wait for it to, to, to kind of go through itself and then you can kind of figure your, and then you have to kind of decide again. But there's this, there's this kind of choice that happens and you otherwise you kind of fall into this and it, and, it, and it really does kind of take you down a journey of this fear and freezing and fighting and various forms of all of that. And so, uh, we have to choose and, and it's better the quicker you can choose the more of this that you can you can get out of because it's very powerful and it's right there in the basic part of our brain. Well, I hope that kind of made some sense as I kind of give a bit of a framework because now Wilma's going to come on and she's going to talk about some experiences she, she had some spiritual revelation. And so I'm going to ask her to unmute and I'm going to add her here. So Wilma, let me just pray for you. And uh, Father, I just pray for Wilma that she mm. would have wisdom and as she shares, she colors in uh, some of the things as from a different angle from kind of that God's revelation in her life and engaging in this without even before she had words for it. Now she's being given words for it. It's just a beautiful thing. So I pray that this would help us to understand. Okay, Wilma, you can go for it here. I'm just going to take myself. Okay, thanks, Cyrus. That was beautiful. That was very well described. 
you're the psychologist and I'm just learning here. And, and so this was a revelation that, you know, informed my life, this, this idea of the threat. And so that's what I want to talk about in terms of my own story. I remember when we were under siege and the threat was very real. It visited us. And I've told this story many times, but I hope it's a little different because I want to talk about it in terms of this new understanding that I've received and giving it new names. I'm going to go back to in 1984, November 30th, our daughter, Candace Dirksen, was coming home from school and she had disappeared. She was abducted by a stranger and went missing for seven weeks. And you can imagine the hell. It was just hell. We were just destroyed during that time and it gained a lot of publicity. So we were dealing with all this kind of thing. And then on January 17th, seven weeks later, her body was found in a shack. She had frozen to death. Her hands and her feet were tied. And that anniversary is coming up right now. And it's always a day for us, always. You know, it's, it's a long time ago, <laughs> but these moments stay with us forever. And as you can imagine, we went to identify her body and that was traumatic. We were so unaccustomed to death, so unaccustomed as a young couple. And then, and then death by murder and under suspicion, under investigation, all of that was just hugely traumatic. So we went to the morgue and we came back and we were met by a bunch of friends who were in already in our house and they were just there giving us love and they brought food and hugs. And so it was a roller coaster day. We would be so relieved that we'd found her. You have no idea how important it is just to know. And then the horror to realize that she had died. We would not be able to bring her home. And she was a big personality. And the other thing was that it was by murder. And we had no idea what was going on. So around 10 o'clock that night, everybody left. And as they were leaving, there was one friend, couple friend that was staying with us the night. Um, there was a knock on the door and we went to answer it. And there was a man who was dressed in black. And he said, I too am a parent of a murdered child. And of course, immediately a lot of stuff happens for us, right? We realized we were parents of a murdered child. That was another big traumatic experience. And he said, I've come to tell you what to expect. So we invited him to the kitchen table because we were interested. We were, this is our biggest interest at the moment, our biggest focus of our life. We wanted to know what to expect after our lives had been kind of destroyed. And he said, in, in many ways, he said, it is destroyed. And it was a kind of a show and tell. He stayed there for two hours. And during that two hours, it was a kind of show and tell what this had done to him. And it was now in hindsight, I can see it was the reptilian response. First of all, he told us that he was alone, that he was disconnected. And I think he was coming to us to connect. He was looking for connection, but he had, he was shut down. He was frozen. That state of, of not really being able to connect with anybody. And then he told us of the stress of how he couldn't concentrate. His mind was cycling. He was afraid. Everything was, he was afraid before his, you know, finding out about his daughter and then about what was happening during the investigation. We, and, and we understood all of that fear. And he even pulled out a bottle of, of, of pills, a row of bottles actually, of pills that he was taking to deal with this stress, this fear and this shutdown experience that he was doing and this, all this emotion that had no place to go because he was really in fighting mode and he was blaming. Oh, he had, again, he pulled out a stack of little black notebooks that he had filled with blame and he was just fighting mad. 
and you can know and and as hard as almost as if you have an invisible enemy and he didn't have he couldn't have access to his enemy and and the and the pain of that and he just vented vented for for two hours and we were just sitting there and I, I kept thinking how could he do this to us we're vulnerable. We've just been going through the worst day of our lives with, with this roller coaster of emotions, and now we had to listen to him. And yet, I couldn't shut him down, out or down. I just fascinated, just absorbed in this horror show. And then he left, and it was as if, oh, and we put everybody to bed, and all the beds were taken, and everybody was settled. And then Cliff and I went to bed. And then at the door, we stopped. There was something on our bed. It was dark, it was threatening, it was a presence. You know, fight, flight, and freeze are contagious. We had been experiencing all of that, but he was magnified and amplified by his experience and his presence with us. In truth, we had been feeling all of that before, but now it was focused, now it was defined, and now it was something that we could blame. So our fight was big, especially now that we saw the end product. And so as we were getting ready for bed, we were desperate. All we knew was that we didn't want to go that way. We did not want to have this reptilian response. We had seen it. We had vivid in our eyes. And, and we just wanted to go the other way. And the only other way and the only alternative that we could think of at the moment was we will forgive. And thank goodness Cliff and I are from the same background, the same teaching, the same kind of toolkit, <laughs> toolbox. So we kind of just agreed, okay, we're going to forgive. That's all we were going to do. And then we continued to get ready for bed. And in essence, when we, we, we told the, the presence on the bed that we were not going to engage, by saying we were going to forgive, we were, we were giving up our right to anger. We were going to trust God with our fears. And we were going to, and forgiving means that we're going to be loving. And we're going to love everybody. And the first person we had to love <laughs> was this man that had come to our door and so rudely interrupted our lives and, and given us this horrible picture and this, this reflection of what we would become. And to realize that he was an angel. And all the people that all said all those wrong things, you know, when you're grieving, and we've been grieving for seven weeks already, they, they just said all the wrong things, you know, and we're, we're hypersensitive in grief, just hypersensitive. It's like, we can feel every whiff of a thought coming through. And they were, they had blamed us. They had, you know, we were just, just filled with, 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 with hurt, pain of the people around us to say, no, we're not going to shut out these people that hurt us. We're going to love them. You know, we didn't even think of the murderer at this point. That was so far removed from our, we had no idea who'd done it. And we just kind of dismissed it. Our forgiveness was directed towards the presence on our bed that was a cloud of all the accumulated trauma that had come up to us. And having said that, in complete naivety, somehow it disappeared. I don't know if it jumped off, rolled off, slid off, <laughs> or just dissolved. By the time we were ready for bed, we just got into bed. We looked at each other. It was gone. And you know what? We actually slept. That in itself is a miracle. Because the threat that we were under, and we've been told many times since then, that experiencing the death of a child is traumatic beyond words, that you can almost never recover from. The death of a child through murder is also almost impossible to get over. And 
uh, the threat of sexual violence around it and the fact that she'd been in that shack for seven weeks without being protected and violated. And, and all of that is probably supposed to be, we were told, the biggest trauma of, of all. And we slept. We slept that night. I still am amazed at the power of that God's wand. <laughs> I call it, it's not magic. It's God's wand of forgiveness. And, um, and it is the word, right? It is the word. There's power in it. And I guess my, after that, we had a press conference and we, they asked us about the murder and, and all, you know, to tell you the truth, Cliff and I weren't even close to being understanding what the murder was about. We were still dealing with this traumatic experience on the bed and just we're trying to get rid of the trauma. So we just said, oh, we're gonna forgive. That was our blanket kind of word for everything. We're gonna forgive, there's power in the word. And they didn't understand it at all because I think the father of lies has reduced and minimized that word to mean that it is only about reconciliation. Even this last year, when I was talking about forgiveness, somebody said, well, have you met with the murderer? And I thought, you have no idea how, how unimportant the murderer is. You have no idea. The murderer, we have experienced much more murder by the words of friends than anything. Words can hurt us just as much as actions. And so that is kind of what I'm, I, I'm realizing again is that as we're talking about the psychological reality, I'm realizing, I'm going back to this, the real word was forgiveness the power of forgiveness and we've got it in our hands and it is social engagement. God, right? It just, forgiveness says, God, I want you. I want you close. And I want you to, uh, it's, a, it's a big prayer. It's a huge big prayer. So in the word forgiveness, it encompasses the entire Bible. It is love in action. It is goodness in action. It is the working word for all of that. And it goes from the beginning of the, tree of good and evil, right to the crucifixion and right to the tree of life at the end in, in Revelations, that, that idea of forgiveness that's so associated with trees. So we move to God in prayer and, and faith and, and, uh, and obedience. So even though we, were, we are threatened, and especially now, you know, with, this, with what's happening in the world around us and, and we have invisible enemies, and, and we have to realize that the partner next door to us, all of that fear and all of that fight, flight, and, and freezing is all there in us, is contagious. We can feel it in our homes, even if we're isolated, it is contagious. And it is directive, it's, it's modeled to us, it's taught to us, and it can seep into our souls. And I think again and again, we have to go back to that word and say, we're gonna forgive. It's always applies. And forgiveness just shortly means, as Cyrus said, letting go, having faith, sacrificing ourselves, letting go of it and saying, you know what, I'm going to die to it. I'm not going to engage with trauma. And then the hope, the hope is the direction. I am going to find a way through this. God is going to show me. <laughs> and to, to the biggest, another big part of getting out of our reptilian response is curiosity. We have to go to a place of curiosity and clear thinking. And then, of course, of love. That we're not going to respond in, in hatred. We need people. We love people, no matter what craziness they do. 
<laughs> we see the beauty of them and, and we see the desires of their souls and we forgive them and we say, we love you and respond to you. And in that way, it all comes to visit back to us and we find our freedom, we can sleep. The threat is gone. Forgiveness deals with the threat and, and, and signals obedience on our side. I just want to pray. Oh God, every time I visit this subject, Lord, we just realize how big you are, how wonderful how you are, and how you gave us tools to deal with what happened in the Garden of Eden. You could have left us. We'd betrayed you. We deserted you. You could have left the house, but you stayed there for us and gave us tools of how to deal with all of this. And knowing that eventually this forgiveness will be the passageway into heaven and all the glory and the beauty and the colors that we talked about today. And all of that, forgiveness is our ticket to that. So Lord, help us to embrace forgiveness, help us to understand it, and help us to apply it in a new way during this time. Amen. Well, um, I think, uh, thank you, Wilma. I think um, one thing I just wanted to, to touch on here now you went through this experience and you kind of did it without kind of this understanding about the reptilian brain and kind of choosing two different responses. Mm -hmm. You were kind of doing it out of that original response. It's like, I'm going to obey. We're Mennonite, you know, like we have that mm -hmm. history of forgiveness. And so you did that, but there was something about this presence that triggered this insight later that when you thought about it again, I mean, in the, in the moment it wasn't as meaningful, maybe it was just kind of part of the experience. But now when you think about it, it's like, oh, there's this thing about this presence that kind of led to this understanding about the reptilian brain and kind of that choice between these two different responses, the choice of social engagement, you know, forgiveness, relationship, trust, faith, and this other kind of fight, flight, and freeze response. And that was, what did the presence look like when you saw it? Well, you know, at first, we didn't talk about the presence, but then when years later, well, then I, some, I heard somebody describe the presence as a dog to them. I, like Winston Churchill says, I have this black dog. And I thought, yes, it feels like a black dog. There is a presence. And I was starting to give it an image and a, a thinking about it. And, uh, and, and so to me, it's a shape-shifting kind of presence. It, it, it adopts the, the whatever fear you have in your mind or trauma you have in your mind, it kind of shape shifts, shape shifts to, to apply to that. So just recently, actually a year ago, Cliff and I were restructuring that bedroom scene. We had never done that. We had just kind of, we did it, we walked on and we were both in our own worlds. And, and uh, so it was, but when you do restructuring, then you realize, realize what the other person was thinking. And I said, did you see the presence too? And he says, yes. I said, what did it look like to you? And he said, reptilian. And it looked like a reptile. It looked like a reptile for him and a dog for me. Hmm. And and I think it, I, it went, could both go both ways. Like I said, it's ship, shape shifting according to mm -hmm. this thing. But it was a presence. And uh, and so I I think that gave gave meaning to all of this. Mm -hmm. It gives a deep meaning and a visual of there is there is the primal response in us. Mm -hmm. But there's certainly somebody who is evoking it and making it real on the outside as well and you know programming it for us or something i don't know mm -hmm. you know moving into ministry time today i think um 
what's been what's been interesting for me is you know we have this choice we can choose between this social engagement with god and with other people when we're faced with this threat or we can choose the reptilian response and one of the things that's really interesting about our situation right now is that we're faced with this enormous threat you know one of the biggest threats to humankind on a global scale and the social engagement has been attacked mm -hmm. yes that's one of our primary responses that we can actually that god gave us from the garden of eden in order for us to to get around this you know reptilian response is social engagement and that's been attacked Yes. We cannot socially engage. And the, the word of the day is socially isolate. Yes. So we're more vulnerable. We're Adam on our own. We're just Adam in the garden. And God said that wasn't good. You know, like we need to be with other people. I'm God. God's the primary one. So we still have that. But this social engagement has been attacked under the biggest threats that we've been under. And it's also another level of that is we can't meet as a church. Yes. You know, the, the, the church gathering, our ability to gather as a church, and I'm not saying that we should be, you know, meeting against government regulations. I'm not getting into that idea, but, um, but still, it's not good, you know, in that sense of how God would say good. It's not good for us to be alone. We are supposed to be socially engaging in order to manage this other response. We're supposed to be engaging with, with each other in this uh, kind of designed way, this communal way. And now that's been attacked. And one of the words this morning was, um, so I believe that there's two things about today. One is like, if you're struggling, you need to know that social engagement is the way to manage this reptilian brain. Social engagement is the way to do that. And you can do that on your own. I know that doesn't make sense. How can you socially engage on your own? Well, we can socially engage with God. Like we have God, he's there. We can go and we can walk with him. And so if you're struggling with this, that's the message today is you can manage this response with trust and faith and engagement with God. And we've been calling people to that. There's been this word repeating of like, this is the time to go and engage with God so that you can manage your fears, so that you can manage your fight, so you can manage your freeze. If you want to free yourself from these responses, you need to engage with God. But the message this morning was about the armor of God. And so I want to honor that. And I'm going to bring Peter uh, and Margaret back on here. So if you guys could unmute yourselves, and I'm going to add you here, and I'm going to say another word here. And then you guys, I, I asked you guys to share this. Um, so Wilma, you're still on, but I have Peter and Margaret on as well now. Now in the, before the service, Peter and Margaret were talking about, um, you know, this armor of God. And there were three people in pre-service prayer who had had this word about the armor of god and christine noticed that christine noticed that this was uh and she highlighted it and um and margaret i believe you were one of the people who actually had this word that came to you about uh the armor of god and and there was another thing that you sent me yesterday about fighting for engagement fighting for um the church and and kind of coming together i was part of that was one of the messages in what you had sent me and mm -hmm. so i was just kind of trying to feel what uh, you know, feel what God was saying this morning and this armor of God and then this fight for our ability to socially engage. Like we've been hit in multiple ways and one of the big ways in order to respond to social engagement, like I said. So I believe that, that today we need to come together and pray, um, not be, you know, be, uh, you know, follow God's word and we need to, you know, respect authority when we can and, and but still to pray for the forces 
spiritual forces that we would not be hampered, that people would be able to socially engage, that we would be able to meet as a church. We would put on the armor, not of the armor of fight, flight, and freeze. That's not, I mean, when people think of armor, they think of that. But we're not putting on that armor. We're putting on the armor of trust and obedience and of love. And God gave us the armor. So I was I asked uh, Margaret to come at the end here and read us through that of the armor of God. And we're going to intercede together. We, I want to include everybody in this. So we're going to intercede together for social engagement on all levels, that we would be able to be with God in our, in our homes, that we would be able to be with each other, and that we would be able to gather as a church in particular, uh, that the Christians would be strengthened, that we would not be weakened in our response. So Margaret, I'm going to hand it over to you. If you could take us through that. Okay, so this is um, Ephesians 6. So this is the Passion Translation. And I'm going to start at verse, um, I guess this is 20. Be supernaturally infused with strength through your life union with the Lord Jesus. Stand victorious with the force of his explosive power flowing in and through you. Put on God's complete set of armor provided for us so that you will be protected as you fight against the evil strategies of the accuser. Your hand-to-hand -hand combat is not with human beings, but with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. For they are a powerful class of demon gods and evil spirits that hold this dark world in bondage. Because of this, you must wear all the armor that God has provided, so you're protected as you confront the slanderous, the slander, for you are destined for all things and will rise victorious. Put on truth as a belt to strengthen your stand in triumph. Put on holiness as the protective armor that covers your heart. Stand on your feet alert, then you will always be ready to share the blessings of peace. In every battle, take faith as your wraparound shield, for it is able to extinguish the blazing arrows coming at you from the evil one. Embrace the power of salvation's full deliverance, like a helmet to protect your thoughts from lies, and take the mighty razor-sharp spirit sword of the spoken word of God. And um, I felt there was... For me, there was an emphasis in the shield of faith, um, just that a soldier's shield was the strongest one linked with another. Mm. And um, I think that's very important that we're not in this battle on our own. We need to be linked with other people mm -hmm. so that the enemy can't break through. Mm -hmm. um, so that speaks to me of being united with other people. And, um, and of course, that is... <laughs> The hard part right now right mm -hmm. but i think this is really really important uh, um, that we need to be um so that we don't feel alone that and where we have more strength more power when we're in where we when we are united with other people thank you so much margaret so i'm just going to take uh some time here and i would like us to all just to pray together on the zoom call um and but you know we're going to I'm going to leave it with just the three of us on the Zoom for now because we're still on Facebook Live. And because I want people on Facebook Live, whoever's joining us to pray with us. And obviously, if you're listening to this later, please continue to intercede. But I want to pray together, linking our shields of faith uh, in unity 
for this. And then I'm going to take us off of Facebook Live in a minute, and we're going to pray, and we're going to let other people speak into this as well on the Zoom call. So, Father, I just thank you for this word. I thank you for the emphasis this morning. And uh, as a church, I just pray that we would stand up in obedience and spiritual warfare with taking up your weapons of faith, your weapons of relationship, your weapons that you've spoken about that we can that, that of your word and your word says that we need to be in unity. Your word says that it's not good for us to be alone. And Lord, I, I just pray that your word would pierce this darkness that we would be able to pray together in unity. So just pray right now with me. Father, we just pray that you would let your bride link arms again in the name of Jesus. Let your bride be together again in the name of Jesus. Lord, let your people have access to the power that comes from our ability to be in unity together in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for ap I pray against apathy that people would be comfortable just in their homes, that we would be able to just be like, okay, with being alone. I pray against that apathy. I, I pray against just so the comfort of, of social isolation that comes with that, this, the increased sensitivity that comes without the sharpening against uh, iron against iron, that we would be that we would come back to being strengthened in order to be able to be with other people again. Lord, I pray that you would help us to link arms again in the name of Jesus. And any evil that's coming against the church, that's coming against these, the, the world, the nations, Lord, we stand together and we say that it has to go and be bound in the name of Jesus, that, that you would make things happen in, in, the, in the physical world, in the world of the virus, in the world of of understanding and science that the world of all these things that things would move in the name of Jesus that we would be able to meet again and I pray for supernatural power through what you have given us now like zoom and other media that you've given us for a time such as this that it would be a powerful way and that people would socially engage the way we can and but Lord even more so that you would make a way supernaturally for us to actually be together again mm -hmm. amen